Hi, my name's Peter Perrett. I'm in Stockholm to do a gig at Debaser. I'm in Frederick Straga's ap- apartment doing a blog for him. Um, it's a very beautiful apartment. He's a very lucky man to live here. Uh, I've got Art Nouveau windows to my right. Ahead of me is a, a wall covered in photographs, including one of Candy Darling. Lots of records, books, sorts of things that people that are interested in art would surround themselves with. And in front of me, I've got the wonderful Frederick Straga, who's going to ask me some questions that I hope I can answer intelligently. I'm so happy to have you here, Peter. Thank you. Last time you put out the record, it was your first album for 21 years. But the new one, or the one that came out last year, only took you two years to record. Yeah, no. <laughs> so what, what, what's it? You haven't been working for many, many years. What's it like to rediscover creativity? It's more about rediscovering life. And um, if I'm alive, I tend to want to create just to do something to distract myself from the world. Um, yeah, so I I didn't go back to sleep. You know, like the previous album I did in the 90s, I went back to sleep straight afterwards. Um, this time, you know, I'm here for the duration because it feels like the afterlife anyway, so... Yeah, maybe this when is you, when you heaven, up, actually, maybe... <laughs> When you wake up in your 60s, it feels like you're dead already. I know that you said at some point that, you know, getting back and getting clean left you feeling as if you were 25 years old. Yeah, from the point of view of it being fresh to me. And, uh, you know, because it's like I'm doing it for the first time because the person that wrote Another Girl, Another Planet in 1977, like you said, was a young 25-year-old you know, who thought he was indestructible and he had the world at his feet. Um, I've learned a few harsh lessons since then. Hopefully I, I'm wiser, I'm certainly older. And um, But it feels like I'm doing it for the first time because um, I don't really have any connection with that 25-year-old because I can't really remember what his motivations were, you know. I mean... It's, they, they seem pretty confused and um, arrogant, you know, to think that you could do live a life like that without any payback. And um, so, you know, but I'm fortunate to have survived his foibles and his mistakes and have a little hobby on the side to get me through the, the last few years of existence. You were the leader of the band The Only Ones between 1976 and... 1982. 80, well, we broke up in 80, but we did some farewell gigs in 81. So, yeah. So what went wrong? Where uh, a lot of things went right, obviously. Yeah, no, to begin with, like, you know, we were, everything went right. And then when you start taking drugs, you start realising that your luck changes. Because, like, you, do, you make decisions that aren't good decisions. And I think the worst decision we made was to split up. You know, because like once we split, you know, I, I didn't like bands that split up and then got back together all the time and, you know, like farewell gigs all the time. You know, it felt like it was a full stop, which it shouldn't have been because we were a great band. In 79, 80, you know, we were an amazing band live. And um, so I think I took even more drugs just to kill the pain, numb the pain of, of not having the band together anymore. And it just one day sort of led to another day and then decades passed. We got great critical acclaim. We built up a great life following. Yeah, the only mistake we made was was breaking up. But it's a cliche, you know, people go on a, a chaotic American tour, fall out with each other. and What happened on the tour? Lots of things went wrong. You know, John got arrested. How did he manage uh, to get himself arrested? Uh, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and so I had a warrant out for my arrest. For, for what? Well, I think John's was for drugs. Mine was for a, um, assault with a deadly weapon. I, I ran someone over. With and, a car? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, who did you run over? Uh, this great big guy who, like, that was my only defence you know, like he was much bigger than me. He would have beat the shit out of me. Well, I had, I didn't have any weapons apart from the car. <clears throat> and it was just a disagreement, stupid. And I was young 
you know, with I was like an angry young man. So if someone attacked me physically, I wanted to get my own back. Yeah, a car is a handy weapon if you. Yeah, but it's fool, it. it was foolish because we had to cancel the last thirty gigs of the tour. Oh, because um, like you know, the lawyer said, "Get out of, get out of California, and you'll be all right." But then someone had taken down the car number, traced it to CBS, who contacted me in New York saying they were going, if I didn't go back they would start extradition proceedings from uh, and you know it just got messy and so we had to cancel gigs and have you been uh, back to California since then no I haven't been back to the United States since 1980 unfortunately this is why it's probably not a good thing to talk about because I do dream of going back but we had a tour booked in 2018 and I had trouble getting a visa And that was nothing to do with that incident because that incident was all smoothed out. You know, lawyers paid the guy. And so, the, you know, there were no charges actually, you know, sort of lodged. You know, it was just a complaint. You know, they never sort of... So that, hopefully that's not on the books anywhere. It was just... And the guy that you ran over, he survived? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> I barely touched him, you know. Like, obviously in America, you know, they sort of make a big deal, limp into the ambulance and stuff like that. But yeah, they sue you for anything. Yeah, yeah. So he just wanted a bit of money. No, it was like really minor. It was like, you know, worse things happen every day. But, um, yeah, no. So the problem I had with the visa was like over my criminal record for possession of drugs in the intervening years. And, um, you know, I still, I don't know if it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a dream, but it's probably a dream that might not come true to, to go back because obviously, I, you know, I've got lots of friends and fans there in America. They let um, Keith Richards into the States, so... Yeah, but what's, what's, know, he, what's he, his... He can, he can still tour. He's got an image, but what, are, what is his actual criminal record? Yeah, you're right. That was in Canada. <laughs> And who took the rap? Anita, wasn't it? Yeah, the she thing did. in Canada. I mean, uh, you know, I think he might have one possession, one possession of hash, you know, conviction. I mean, you know, he's, everyone knows about his image, but his criminal record is uh, sort of... Um, non-existent as well you know and also he's got incredibly expensive lawyers and he probably pays millions of dollars in tax every time he tours so that makes a difference Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I'm going to play a track by Bob Dylan, who was the first musical influence that changed my life. Uh, at the age of 11, there was the Beatles, and they sang catchy songs. And then that was 1963. 64, it was like the Kinks and the Yardbirds I liked, and that was mainly because of guitar sounds on them. And then I heard Bob Dylan's voice, and I realized that in pop music somebody could be actually speaking directly to you um, and from then on it was all about the sound of the voice 
Um, the sonic landscape was important as well, but uh, if you didn't have that voice, then you didn't get on my record player every single minute of the day. And so I just became obsessed with Bob Dylan. First thing I heard was Times Are Changing, which was great because it was like, it expressed what every 13 year old was feeling at that time. They hate, you know, I was having, I was in conflict with my parents and the school teachers, and uh, it just felt like a voice of rebellion. And then, like a Rolling Stone, was the thing that finally convinced me that this was my God. Um, just the way he, an he announced the words, he enunciated the words. Uh, it just felt like uh, he was unique. And so there was like um, three, three singles in a row, like a Rolling Stone, and the two standalone singles, uh, Positively Fall Street, and then the song I'm going to play now, Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window. Which album is this one on? That's a standalone single. It's, it's not, a standalone yeah. single. It's, it's been on um, albums of like, you know, compilation albums, you know, recently. But at the time, it wasn't on any album. It was just by, it came out, I think it was the, either the end of 65 or the beginning of 66. The only ones came around when punk was starting to become really big, but you never really felt like punks. You were way more sophisticated Oh, thank you. I always wanted to try and hard to be sophisticated in my ignorance because I don't read books. Well, I, I used to read books then. I became incapable of reading books. So, yeah, I, I was always, by that time, you know, when I was 15, I was a hippie and I used to wear caftans and stuff. And that was the last time I ever tried to fit into anything current or fashionable. And... Um, After that, I tried as hard as I could to be an individual, hence the name The Only Ones. You know, I wanted us to be different from anything else that was around. And punk was great because it made it so easy to be different. You know, if you didn't wear the punk uniform, have the spiky hair, you know, then you stood out from the crowd. And um, if you didn't play, you know, it had a, a very regimented musical form as well. So, like, um, you know, the fact that we had lead guitar. I mean, our most famous song, Another Girl, Another Planet, has got a one-minute lead guitar intro before the vocals even start. You know, that was anti-punk, you know, because I, I like to go against the grain as much as possible. And although we had crossover fans who were punks, um, and, you know... Would they spit at you? Uh, no, there was one, one gig where... We played with the Heartbreakers and that was a very real punk audience, but that's the only time after that we got our own, like you say, more sophi the sophisticated punks who thought out of the box. Um, liked us. So, and lots of them went on to become musicians because a lot of them liked us because we actually expressed ourselves in a musical way rather than limited ourselves to a very formulaic type of music. I read somewhere that Malcolm McLaren, who was the manager for the Sex Pistols and who basically created the group, had his eyes on you. Before. I don't know if he had his eyes on me. He was friends with me. He, he was friends <coughs> you with know, you. We okay. knew him from like 74. Um, yeah, he came around our house. We went around his house, him and, and Vivian. And, you know, so it was like, I found it really exciting to see this crazy um, sort of court jester type person who was very very amusing and had these ideas to actually see him more or less take over the music business you know like everyone was following where he took the sex pistols and it was wonderful to watch you know i don't think he he had his eyes on me as being a potential member because i was like four years older than than John Lydon and the rest, you know. Not I so would, easy to control. Or yeah, I was, I was the same age as Johnny Thunders. So, like, we thought that they were all kids and they were, like, 
they you know it was it was fun to watch from a slightly more sophisticated adult vantage point but there was lots of great music that come out of the punk scene um lots of the bands you know developed and became really good did you see the first like sex pistols shows uh yeah i saw a few of them because like malcolm used to invite every single person he knew to every gig so yeah i saw some you know like 1975 you know started seeing them uh, I, I, and the, the early gigs were the, the best gigs because the audience hated them You know, there weren't any punks there really at the gigs. There was just like a few people that used to go to Malcolm and Vivian's shop and the rest of them were students or, you know, just people that did not want to see the Sex Pistols. And so the confrontation between... And the, the band didn't give a fuck, which was like, that's what was really amusing. Uh, you know, and I actually really enjoyed the gigs from that. That um, just... It's the tension that's created. It's not... It's not the same as Bob Dylan getting booed when he played when he went electric. Do you know what I mean? It's not that great a moment in the history of music, but the tension did make it very enjoyable. It appealed to my sense of humor. I had this French electronic artist called Perturbator here as a guest. His name is oh Nick Kent. Yes, Nick, Nick Kent's, Kent's son. Oh, right, right. Because uh, oh. Nick Kent was, of course, a famous music writer in the seventies, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. played the guitar in the first. Lineup of the Sex Pistols. Yeah, he probably played. He probably went to rehearsals and stuff. And yeah, when Malcolm was looking for yeah, and, people, yeah. and then he was fired for being too middle class. <laughs> and then Sid Vicious no, hit, that, hit him over the head with a rusty bicycle chain. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, yeah. I wasn't there when that Sid did that. I mean, when I knew Sid, Sid was every time I met him, he was like, uh, you know, most polite, quiet kid. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think people could wind him up to do stuff. I think he tended to perform um, a performing seal at the circus sometimes, you know, but he was, deep down, he was really innocent. So, I mean, I know Nick has never forgiven him for that and I don't know how it came about. But, yeah. yeah but you, Nick, you used to hang around with Nick Kent as well. Well, yeah, because like, he interviewed me, um, like, early on. He was one of the first people who interviewed me for the NME and um, he recognised one of the songs that, because there was a song called City of... No, Peter and the Pets, Peter and the Pets, which I'd done on the England's Glory album in 19, uh, December 71. And um, a person at EMI had played it to Nick Kent in 1972 or whenever, saying it was undiscovered Lou Reed um, sort of demos. And he bought that? And and he sort of like, well, it could be. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and then he remembered, when he heard it, because it was like the B-side of our first single, uh, Lovers of Today, you know, Peter and the Pets were on the B-side, and he recognised the song, so he knew it was the person that he'd first heard. And um, But Nick was funny, you know, like, uh, yeah. He, you know, he's a great, great writer in the history of rock writers, you know, he's a great rock writer. I heard uh, this amazing story about Nick Kent once sitting in a Chinese restaurant in Soho, and he's there with uh, Iggy Pop and David Bowie, and there's a waitress who comes up to them and she asks Nick Kent for an autograph. She doesn't <laughs> mind the other two. Who, he, who he, told that story, Nick? Probably, no, but he, he no, looked no, so no, flamboyant. He uh, he's flamboyant, but he's a really shy, down-to-earth person, do you know what I mean? But he was, you know, he was a bohemian, and, uh, and he didn't compromise at all. Um, but the very first time... He, he came around to interview me at my flat uh, for NME and he wrote, took notes and everything. And then when he left, he left all the notes behind and an empty bottle of methadone. <laughs> so that was my first memory of meeting Nick. Like, but he wrote a great, do you know what I mean? He, like the notes were superfluous, really. He just wrote a great piece anyway. In the early 80s, the only ones had um, support acts like Echo and the Bunnyman, Simple Minds and U2. They all became huge. Do, yeah, do you yeah. sometimes feel a little bit bitter that your band didn't move on to the same level think, of success? I don't think bitter is the right word. I think stupid is <laughs> is a more appropriate word. You know, because like like you said, you know, when we played the last scene, like psychedelic first supported us, simple mind supported us a couple of times. Even you two, yeah, you two in Cork supported us, um, and then <clears throat> when we were on the bill of the Future Armor Festival. Echo and the Bunnyman, Teardrop Explodes, The Fall, they're all below us on the bill. And, you know, obviously there's part of me that thinks maybe if we'd have carried on, you know, we could have had a career. But 
you know, a couple of the choices that I've made for records to play later, I think that demonstrates that I'm, I've never approached music in a career-minded fashion uh, because a couple of the people that I've chosen later didn't have careers either or weren't <coughs> compliant in, an, in the normal way of, of trying to, to be career-minded and have a work ethic, you know. Yeah, so like I said, Joe, with Bob Dylan, it was his voice, the first voice that spoke to me. And the second voice that spoke to me was Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground. I just loved the sound of his voice. And the subject matter seemed to be a bit darker. You know, songs like Venus in Furs, the first album just, you know, in 1967, I was 15. That changed my life. And then the second album came out pretty soon afterwards. And it had one side with two songs on it, which I listened to that side of, of music. I listened to more than any other music in my life. And the first track on that side is I Heard a Call My Name. Then my mind split open. That was I Heard a Call My Name by the Velvet Underground, the best lead guitar ever in the history of rock and roll music. And what's great is that Paul's and then it goes straight into Sister A and 17 minutes of bliss. And if you could survive Sister A, you were my friend. It's amazing that that music was recorded in the 60s. You know, it's so avant-garde, it hurts. I, well, that's why I liked it. You know, it stood out. You know, it was unique. It was like otherworldly. It wasn't what all the other plebs were doing. You know, it was like somebody special with their own unique vision of the world and in expressing it in ways that touch the heart, the soul, the mind, every part of your body. Do you know why your song, Another Girl on Another Planet, became such a huge hit? It's a good song, I think. I think in spite of me, I actually wrote something that had a, a chorus that you can sing along to. You know, I never realized that. I, you know, because I never tried to be um, commercial or appeal to anyone. I just made music for my own amusement. Um, but then over the years, I've appreciated that even though... It had, there was like a, a minute, 32 bars a minute before the vocals came in, which is not normal in if you're trying to, because like these days people are taught you've got to hit the chorus within X amount of, do you know what I mean? There's all these formulaic songwriting. People's attention spans are getting shorter. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, it's been used in films, um, TV series, adverts and stuff. And like... In a couple of those, you can hear people singing along to the chorus. And so it has got a sing-along chorus in a way. And like a, um, a writer, Paul Williams, said once, it's like an adrenaline rush from beginning to end. And yeah, so I think that's why it has survived the test of time. The opening line goes, I always flirt with death. Yeah. I look ill, but I don't care about it. Yeah, well, this is it. There's the arrogance of youth. You know, you think you're indestructible and, and you can walk the edge of life without falling off. Um, but did you know at that point that you were kind of heading towards self-destruction? No, I thought I had it all under control. That's the whole point. You know, when you first start flirting with death, you know, you're actually quite in control of your actions. And it's like a very gradual descent into the abyss where suddenly you realize you're no longer in control. Um, it's, it's like people that drink, uh, you know, socially. And then it's only when they wake up and need a drink as soon as they wake up that they realize that they're in trouble. Is it true that Keith Richards once 
attempted to produce the only ones? Well, I don't, know, had if some I don't know if attempted to produce is the the right. He came to the studio um, in 1976. Came to the, a little studio where we did our first demos as the only ones, and then he came to Basing Street as well. And we all went round to his house to discuss the possibility of him producing. But I think it was just a mutual friend that just wanted to get us together and socialize with both of us. You know, like so it was just like we spent a few social evenings together and like that he he particularly liked a song Prisoners and he wanted me to teach him the chords. So he, he was playing it on his electric piano. But it was never a formal discussion about him producing this. But it becomes you know it's like Chinese whispers, you know. Like what happened, there was a um, a writer, Barbara Sharon, who used to write for Sounds. And I think she did a, a book on Keith Richards, or she was writing a book. And she was around his place when he was listening to our demos. So then it got put in Sounds, oh, Keith Richards is listening. That's how Johnny Thunders, you know, he read it about it in Sounds, thought, oh, if Keith Richards is interested in them, like because uh, Keith was Johnny's hero. So Johnny, that's how Johnny came to our first gig. And Nick Kent's hero as well. Yeah, I, I think Nick they, yeah, yeah. Nick Kent writes in his autobiography, Apathy for the Devil, that <laughs> Keith Richards had a pretty bad influence on him. Right, okay. I read this great Keith Richards story in, in a book recently. He was on tour in the States in the late 70s, and they were doing loads of drugs backstage. And then there's a knock on the door, and one of his minders says, um, Keith, the police is here, they want to meet you. <laughs> and they all panic. So they run into the bathroom, they flush the drugs, and then they open the door and there's Sting with Stuart Copeland. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny story, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know whether to believe it or not, but it's definitely great, you know, after all these decades to, to tell stories like that, yeah. So I spoke previously about how the voice was the most important thing in music to me. Um, and this next record I want to play is by an artist with the most incredible, incredibly beautiful voice. Out of this love for you. only one, done one album so she's somebody who like myself is not particularly career-minded she's an artist in the true sense of the word I got her album which came out in 1988 it was called Miss America even though she's Canadian from Toronto then I had the great fortune when I started playing music again in 2007 with the only ones when we reformed we did um, festival called the ATP festival the time we were meant to be on stage I was unconscious the sleep of the dead but they managed to wake me up and I got on stage like 15 minutes after we were meant to be on did the gig next morning next early afternoon Mary Margaret Hara was appearing at the festival and it was like an epiphany you know I already liked her album loved her voice but seeing her in person is the only time that tears have run down my face I was still using hard drugs then so I was very numb nothing touched me and for this experience to reduce me to tears was an everlasting experience like I said it was an epiphany I don't know how long ago she she phoned me out of the blue and she has done again you know and Literally, she just phones out of the blue. And so I thought this song, it means a lot to me because it's called Out of the Blue and it demonstrates her the beauty of the voice of an angel.
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How much did you hesitate before, like getting back together? Did, did Warren Ellis, who, uh, who was the curator the, for the festival, have, have to convince you a lot? Or well, that was a, that you? was the selling point. What happened? Like I hadn't seen the the rest of the band for decades. You know, I think I'd there was one event like twenty years before or something. Though I I can't remember how many years, but we we didn't see each other socially. And then the three of them turned up at my my house. So I knew like this <laughs> something serious for the three of them to turn up. And um and so the big selling point was that Warren Ellis had requested it for us to and because like I was flattered. You know, I'd heard of Nick Cave and the Bad Seas and I'd heard of Warren. So I was flattered that a fellow musician liked our music enough to to want to make the effort to invite us to his festival. Um I had a natural reticence towards doing that because I think music should only evolve out of a, a natural organic process of me being clean, me wanting to pick up guitar again, where that results in me writing songs and then I want to communicate those songs to other human beings. And it's a natural process which I think produces the best results. And so this unnatural process where I'm taking a lot of heroin, a lot of crack, I've got no interest in music whatsoever. And it's this proposition is put before me. Um, every instinct told me to say no. But because like Warren Ellis had asked and mainly because I wanted to get back next door so I could get back to my best friend, my crack pipe. I sort of acceded to the request and, you know, and the three pleading faces in front of me of my ex-brothers. I mean, in, like, in the late, late 70s, these were my brothers. And So, so, I, so yeah. you, you hadn't seen each other for decades? Not, well, like maybe I hadn't seen Alan at all, I don't think. Well, no, we, no, there's some type... Uh, briefly in the 90s, when I had a band together, they came to a book signing. Yeah, you that had a band called saw, The One. The One, yeah. For and, sure. Yeah, and we did one album called Woke Up Sticky. And um, at the same time, round about the same time, uh, a girl called Nina Antonia wrote a biography about me. And she held a book signing launch and invited the only ones. So that, that was the last time I saw them. What do you remember from your darkest times because you basically spent years and years at home yeah, without really yeah. seeing I mean, anyone it's more or less 35 years apart from a couple of years in the mid 90s it's more or less 35 years hardly going out of the room and so you know i've got great <laughs> memories of staring at walls you know in a, in a stupor uh i lived an incredible life in my head and in my fantasies and in my daydreams 
but nothing tangible that I can remember. So, so what would a typical day look like? A day. Well, day, a day wasn't that defined. The days there was no like going to bed at night and then getting up in the morning. There was none of that. It was like just existing, smoking as much. Occasionally, I'd become semi-conscious for like an hour or two. Then, if I became conscious enough to grab what I needed to wake me up again, so it was a very. It was just a, a sort of um, a purgatory. Really, it was like. Um, And it's, you know, halfway between life and death. Did you manage to write anything during that period? I had nothing. I, I didn't play the guitar, never touched the guitar, didn't listen to music. You know, I, to me, I'm a very extreme person with extreme obsessions. And if when drugs became my number one obsession, there was no room for anything else. And... I wouldn't demean music. I wouldn't lower the importance of music by doing it half-heartedly. So I've only created music if I've been clean enough to do it properly. Um, you know, at the beginning with the only ones, when I started experimenting with drugs, I carried on writing songs because I had control over the drugs and they were just a tiny part of my life. You know, I was, you know music... Uh, relationships, romance, things like that were my main priorities. So and you never had a period when drugs actually helped you, you know, or inspired they, you in any way? <clears throat> when I first started taking drugs, obviously I could use the, the imagery because um, lyrics should be multidimensional. So you want them to have at least two different meanings. So I could write about romance and relationship using analogies and drag imagery. And that was the only influence at all. I mean, I did write a song about drugs called The Beast. Um, I wrote that when I know that it couldn't happen to me, I wrote. Do you know what I mean? I, I'd realize, that was me realising the dangers of heroin, but thinking I still had it under control. And then I, the other song I wrote about heroin was Trouble in the World, which was everybody thinks that they're the one, everybody thinks they're stronger than everybody else. They see what happens to their friends, they don't believe that's how they're going to end. That's when I started to realise that I was in trouble. How involved were you like in the drug trade? Because you had a friend who had his own import from Bolivia... Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is, you know, we, we had lots of contacts and we had access to, yeah, like things that were straight from where they were grown, um, which just made it a lot easier to maintain that lifestyle for 35 years because... I, I don't think you're supposed to get high on your own supply. That's well, no, one of no, the old rules well, that's, 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 it's drug the same, dealers. Yeah, no, it's the same stupidity as breaking up a great band, you know. Like, I have made stupid decisions. I, w I wouldn't recommend that lifestyle to anybody because for a start, the technology, the surveillance technology is so different now that, um, yeah, it's a very da much more dangerous world. So this next song is by Lou Reed, who is the singer of the Velvet Underground. Caught between the twisted stars, the plotted lines, the faulty map that brought Columbus to New York. Betwixt between the east and west, he calls on her wearing a leather vest, the earth squeals and shudders to a halt. A diamond crucifix in his ear is used to help word off the fear that he has left his soul in someone's rented car. Inside his pants he hides a mop to clean the mess that he has dropped into the life of lightsome Juliet Bell. And Romeo wanted Juliet. And Juliet wanted I loved the Velvet Underground, everything they did I loved. And because I was such a big fan, I bought Lou Reed's solo albums. In hindsight, there's only three three tracks, solo tracks, that I think are as good as his Velvet Underground output. And to me, it's just my opinion, lots of people would think, completely disagree with me, but the three songs I like are Street Hassle, Dirty Boulevard, and this song, 
Romeo had Juliet. Outside the streets were steaming, the crack dealers were dreaming of the Uzi someone had just scored. I bet you I can hit that light with my one good arm behind my back, says little Joey Diaz. Did you ever meet Lou Reed? I met Lou Reed in 1972 when they toured. His, well, the first time he ever came to, to England. He toured with a band called The Tots. And they were great. And we got to know them because we got invited back by the band. And they were all living in the same um, flat, um, sort of a holiday let flat on the king, corner of Kings Road and Beaufort Street. And so, yeah, every gig they did south of Cambridge, we went to and uh, hung about with them. And um, Zena spoke to him more than I did. You know, I, I spent time with him, but I was like, I don't know whether I was aloof or shy. It was one or the other. Like, because I, you know, I didn't like to do anything that seemed like I was like a fan. But, um, but it might have just been shyness as well, you know, cause, like, because I was a fan. Whereas Zena could talk to anyone, so Zena spent a long time talking to him. And Zena, of course, is your wife. Yeah, yeah. And you've been married for more than 50 years. Uh, we've been married, we've, yeah, we've been married 50 years, just gone in January. Been together 51 years. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, Thank you. It's that's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you stick together for so yeah, long, it's, especially with the we kind of... We were just so out of it, we didn't have the strength to leave. <laughs> No, I mean, obviously, that's a slightly flippant comment, but, you know, it's, I suppose, like, in some ways it's true, but when you go through those sort of things together, it just creates a bond, you know, like, people who suffer together have stronger connections than those who are most content. Bob Dylan wrote those words, and they're true. Um, you know, we would have stayed together anyway, but going through things that probably no... You know, probably no other person has gone through our lives the way we've gone through them. Uh, it does, you know, create a special bond. But still, you know, for most people who get into like heavy drugs, they um, they need to get divorced or leave their partner because you become codependent. Oh, yeah, the codependency thing. Like yeah. the first time we went into rehab, like, well, the only time we went into rehab because like it was 1985. And the doctors were like big on the codependency thing. Like they wanted us to have separate rooms. And I just said, look, if we don't have the same room, I'm leaving now. You know, there was things more important. You know, to me, my relationship with Zena was more important than getting clean. Getting clean was important. But when you discover your soulmate, it's like what Kurt Vonnegut called the nation of two. You know, if you're, you know, as that nation of two meant everything. And, you know... The first 10 years of our relationship, I was, um, I was unfaithful every day. And the last 40 years, I've been faithful every day. You know, it's like she gave me everything I needed. Yeah, no, co codependency is interesting because, you know, it depends how strong the bond is. Like if the bond, if this isn't the person that you need to be with the rest of your life, then maybe getting clean is more important than staying with them. But um, Zena was your manager as well. She managed yeah, the only yeah, ones. Yeah, because she was the person that actually was like, I wasn't so scared of where drugs might take me because Zena was so strong and so together. I thought my life could never fall apart. And um, yeah, so she organized everything. She she allowed me to retain my childhood um, irresponsibility. I didn't have to grow up. I could just be, you know, be a free-spirited person. And she would make the world carry on turning. And then it all went wrong when the band split up because she managed the band and that was her raison d'etre for accepting me the way I was and putting up with all the shit. And when the band broke up, it broke her heart because she believed in my music more than I did. And um, it was after that that she started taking drugs. And that's when it all fell apart. And how did you become a couple? Very gradually. I mean, we, um, she, she was Greek Cypriot, so she had a very strict upbringing. Uh, she'd never been on a train in her life, never been to the cinema in her life. 
Never been life. on a train? No, no. Her, she, her life revolved around going to school. She had to be back half an hour after school finished and, um, and bring up. She was the oldest daughter in a Greek family. So she brought up the family of eight kids, uh, you know, cooked for them, sort of nursed them, did everything. And so she had a re- very rigid life. So the only way she expressed herself was during the school hours when she was allowed out of the house. And so we started, she started not going to school at all. And I stopped going to the, the college I was going to. And we just used to spend all the school time in each other's company. And her parents were crazy about you, of course. Uh, well, no, her parents never met me. She couldn't tell her. But, you know, they had killed her. Her father had killed her. I mean, she was meant to have an arranged marriage. Really? So, yeah. Oh, yeah, they had arranged marriages, Greek families. And... Um, So, yeah, so this was like so really... Who, who was she supposed to marry? I don't know, some hairdresser, some Greek hairdresser. This was the, you know, and... Um, and she picked the crazy rocker instead. Yeah, well, no, she, you know, she had to, you know, so we started seeing each other and just became really good friends. And so between January and May was the first time I kissed her. And then by June, July, she decided to run away from home And we both ran away from home. And her father found out where her school friend lived, who told her, who told him about one, where one of my friends lived. And so we get this frantic message, you know, Zena's dad's turned up at my friend's house with a shotgun demanding to know where I live, you know. And uh, so, you know, we had to, it was, we were literally on the run, you know, decided we had to get out of London because it was too hot in London. So we hitched around the country, sleeping in bus shelters and fields, um, occasionally finding somewhere to stay until we came back to London and started making a life of our own. I'm chained to the wall. Daniel Johnston, you know, I don't know if your listeners know of him, but he's as far removed from a typical rock star as you could imagine. Um, his recordings, lots of people think his recordings are extremely hard listening because they sound, they sound like they were recorded on a cassette and like you could often hear his mum shouting in the background and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, Like he has um, sort of well-documented sort of mental aberrations. You know, I won't say mental health issues. I, you know, he's just wired differently from lots of people. And because of this, he, he, like myself and Mary Margaret O'Hara, have not been the most conventional artists as far as doing what needs to be done to build a career. Uh, luckily for him, Uh, Kurt Cobain started wearing T-shirts of his, which lots of people thought, who's that on the, you know, who's, what's all this about? Who's Daniel Johnson? And then um, Jeff Feuerzeig uh, made a documentary, The Devil and, and Daniel Johnson. And so his music has got across to a bigger audience. You know, he's still not mainstream. I don't think Daniel Johnson could ever be mainstream. But uh, it's... If you want to find out about him, there's two songs in particular. One's The Story of an Artist, and then this song, which is my favorite, Like a Monkey in a Zoo. You know how it feels to live in your own dirt, like a monkey in a zoo. I forget which, which song, but he's got a line, if I can't be a lover, I'll be a pest. I think that's so beautiful, because he's so, it's just from such a place of innocence, you know. It's so odd. And so sweet. His voice is re- slightly like Neil Young, the whininess of it. And, uh, and his lyrics remind me a bit of Jonathan Richmond, you know, like the childlike innocence of, you know. Yeah, Daniel Johnston is kind of like the Elvis Presley of so-called outsider music. Uh, yeah. You know, within <laughs> that field, outsider music, Daniel yeah. Johnston is one of the biggest names. I guess you have a few things in, in common. I mean, he, he was basically gone for, you know, a decade. No one really knew where he was. He just disappeared. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it, it, that's not very long a decade. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I think most people would think, that, you know, being gone for a decade is a long time. Yeah, uh, no, it's just a beginner. <laughs> How did you finally clean up? Um, that was five years ago. No, no, I, I stopped smoking April the 8th, 2011. It was the last time I inhaled anything. Like, you know, I hadn't had one puff of nicotine even. Because um, that's how, how I used to take drugs, was in, inhaling them. Um, and, you know, lots of people find it hard to stop smoking nicotine. I mean, to me, stopping smoking and discovering the pleasures of being able to breathe, because not being able to breathe is quite frightening. Um, Did you get could, some kind of damage to your lungs? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got, like, <laughs> every every disease that you can... Yeah, I mean... I've got um, COPD, which is like emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and I've got pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, stage, my, mine's stage three, Zena's is stage four. And that's from smoking crack? Yeah, I mean, the crack, uh, it's from smoking everything. I think probably crack did the most damage, just through the nature of how you smoke it. Because um, like, there's plastics and things involved. But no, just being able to breathe. Because you smoked plastics? Well, no, like the pipes I, I smoked, <laughs> I'll get down to the technicalities, like the pipes that I smoked the crack in were plastic and the best bits were the residue that was left on the inside. So I used to scrape those to the extreme because they were the best bit. They were like the most pure bits, but obviously a lot of plastic would come off as well. And so but I didn't care because like I was, I enjoyed the feeling and yeah, obviously I wish I, in some ways it, it's, it's a safer way to take drugs to I inject them if you inject them cleanly with clean needles. But I was always wary of needles because the first time I, I ever used a needle, I caught hepatitis B. And I was also aware that it was much easier to OD with a needle because I had no self-control over amounts that I took. Whereas with, with smoking, there's only so much you can get into your lungs at a time. And although I did it repeat, it's, uh, it, it's very hard to OD. Um, so how do you stay sober? Do you go to NA meetings and things like no, that? No, I, I just realised that oxygen is important to life. And um, certain organs are important to the body being able to function. Yeah, you probably and need became, a set of lungs. That's a good, became, good thing to have. Yeah, I became self-aware. Do you know what I mean? Before, I was just it was just my brain, and I, and I didn't really care about the vessel that carried my brain because I, I thought I was the most beautiful person in the world with perfect physique and physiology, and that would last forever. And then once my body started getting affected to the point where my brain wasn't sure that it was going to have anywhere to live any longer, I think my brain got into survival mode and thought, I'd better preserve this thing because I can't exist by myself. I'm not going to... There's going to be no brain transplant. So my brain started looking after my body a bit more. Obviously, I haven't got the same lung capacity, so I can't jump about, roll about on the stage and sing. I have to control my movements... But uh, maybe, it's, maybe it would be good to see a 67-year-old rolling about on the stage. I'm not Iggy, you know, but I'm alive. And that being alive is such a great triumph at my age that every day is like, you know, I get to meet people like you and have great conversations. And, you and you're, know. you're 67 now? Yeah. I remember when my father turned 64 and, mm. it, and it felt, you know... Bittersweet, because that's the age that the Beatles sing about on Sgt. Pepper, When I'm 64. Yeah, but to me, that, that, that's a Paul McCartney song. So, I mean, the Beatles, I, I love John Lennon, but I think that the Beatles' uh, repertoire was tainted by the, the nursery rhyme songs. And uh, so, <laughs> I know what you're saying, though. I know what you're saying. Let's listen to Marky Moon by television. Okay.
They're old friends of yours as well. Uh, not friends, we toured with were The first, um, after we signed to CBS, the first support tour we did, uh, at the time that our album came out, was with television. So we put, supported them on a tour around England and, uh, well, the UK. And um, the person I got to know was Richard Lloyd. Um, yeah, you say this live once. Yes, right? I say Richard's, uh, and he's thanked me. He's actually thanked me a couple of times recently on mes Facebook Messenger, like you know, getting across to me that he really does appreciate it. So, but, how uh, did you save him? Because um, he OD'd at my place, and it was after we'd played the Lyceum, and you know, he I think he played in a key which hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> it was like it was very, but avant garde would be like a really polite way of describing it but anyway it was funny and then he came back to my place afterwards and thinking about the way he played he must have taken something before I don't know whether it was alcohol um, downers or something but he must have taken something because at my place he had like less than a pound's worth of heroin that he snorted and then after five minutes his lips went blue and realized I was in trouble because like he was, you know, there's what you do when someone's, you know, if you're in Amsterdam in the, the 60s or early 70s or, or in street hassle, you grab them by the ankles and <laughs> drag them out to the street like another hit and run. But, you know, I was a nice person, so I, I wasn't, that wasn't an option. So luckily my drummer Kelly, who's like really big, Kelly who's who died a couple of years ago, but when he was alive, he was really tall and strong, and he came around and helped me carry him into the car, and we got him to the hospital, and they came out with, uh, the doctors came out to the car, put him on a trolley, and started giving him, you know. CPR. Yeah, CPR, to start his heart again, and they saved his life, and um, for, I don't know if it's a good thing, for, I don't, but if you like Richard Lloyd, then I, I'm a hero and a savior. If you don't like him, then sorry. <laughs> Here's a band called Love Minus Zero. But this band, Love Minus Zero, has your two sons in it. Yeah. Jamie correct. on guitar and Peter yeah. Jr. On, on bass. Yeah, they play with me now. They're in my band. They're now. in your band. Yeah, and they played on my two recent albums on Domino and do the gigs with me. And Jamie sounds like he's about 12 there. You keep on looking, looking for something new. Cause you don't know how, how it feels when it's good. Your most offensive weapon is in your head, in your head. Just like your mother said, you'd be better off dead. Has music made it possible for you to connect to them on a deeper level than when you were kind of strung out? Um, when I was strung out, I'm ashamed to say I probably didn't connect with them on any level. I was like, we were absentee parents. They, they tended to, even at a very young age, they tended to look after us in lots of ways. And um, so they had a very... I wouldn't say abject childhood, but they had an, a severely unconventional childhood. So it's amazing that they turned out to be amazing human beings. Um, they're probably damaged as fuck, but they're lovely people. Um, and I'm incredibly fortunate to play music with them because when you share, share music with people, it makes you incredibly close anyway. But when those two people are your sons who you, who missed out on you in their childhood. You know, lots of people my age probably never see their children apart from Christmas. Do you know what I mean? I never saw my parents at all. I turned up like three hours late for Christmas dinner, but that was it. That was like a duty. You know, even when they came to my gigs, they weren't allowed backstage. Do you know what I mean? 
<laughs> so like previous generations, people weren't close to their parents. So to, you know, to be able to, you know, when you make music together, it's, you get such a buzz from it. Were you ever worried that your sons might, you know, follow in your, your steps in terms of decadence? Because um, they, 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 they joined the baby shambles, yeah. which, you know, yeah. must have been... Yeah, they were in Baby Shambles. Nervous. They were only in Baby Shambles in 2004 for about three months or so. And, and they weren't... They, they started the band, right? With, yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. The first, yeah, there was like... Um, there was um, Gemma on drums, uh, Peter played bass, my, you know, Peter Jr. played bass, and Jamie and Patrick were the guitarists, yeah. And so the, the first tours they did, you know, around England. But... My kids weren't really, they weren't um, impressed by that lifestyle. It didn't shock them and it didn't, they didn't think it was glamorous. They'd seen it to extreme degrees where it was, they just thought it was a bit pathetic because they'd seen the very worst sides of, of what drugs can do to human beings. Not necessarily to me and Zena, but to some of the people that were on the periphery. And at the same time, you were the musical hero of Pete Doherty. Well, I think, you know, he, at the time, he'd done an interview on television and somebody asked him if there was one song in the world that you wished you could have written, what was it? And he said, another girl, another planet. So when we, when I met him, he was very complimentary. But I think... You know he's just he's a, he's a very charming person when you first meet him, and he's good at flattering people that he has use for at the time. So you know I don't know how much of a hero. I mean he has said that he liked that particular song, but um, I think in different situations he would say the same thing about anybody else that he <laughs> he needed something from. I think your sons, you know got into some kind of conflict with Pete Doherty because this song, Psycho Baby by Love Minus Zero, was basically written about him. Uh, yeah, I think it was his speaker. I think, well, I can't say because I didn't write it, but it was, uh, they wrote it soon after leaving, yeah, I mean. And they sing, seeing you ain't much fun because you get ugly and dumb. <laughs> Just like your mother said, you'd be better off dead. <laughs> Tough words. <laughs> Well, you know, he's got, you know, people either love him or hate him, you know. People that love him are, are people that hear his music and have never met him. People that hate him are people that get to know him and, <laughs> like, uh, that, you know, do you know what I mean? Uh, whereas, you know, the reason I didn't, you know, I had a slightly jaundiced view of Pete Doherty is that when, I, when we were asleep, we actually fell asleep. He came and stole the last crack and then let Zeta look for it for two hours before he admitted stealing it. And he only admitted it because he realised we weren't going to go and get any more until Zena found it because she knew there was still some there. So that's, you know, that's not good drug et etiquette. Go in someone's handbag when they're asleep and stealing. No, you shouldn't steal other people's crack. Yeah, Well, yeah. you shouldn't smoke crack for a start. But <laughs> no, but if you do, I mean, obviously, like that's a lifestyle choice. You know, I'm not going to condemn it or, or be judgmental about it because, like, it's a lifestyle choice. It's... It's not very good for your um, for prolonging your life, but it's just a choice that you make. I'd like to thank Frederick for his incredible hospitality, uh, for being such a bubbly human being. It's Frederick, thank you for inviting me here, and. Um, so I hope you get lots of guests even able to communicate in intelligent ways, you know, which I struggle to do because my brain is so um, indisciplined that occasionally I'll have moments where I can form a sentence and I hope that I've formed enough sentences. Well, you've formed some very interesting sentences today. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. It's a true honour to have you here. Thank you for having me. Den här podcasten producerades av Daniel Bäckström och Anders Schillander för Leon Media. Och Peter Parrott var hemma hos Radio. Mom? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Another girl, another planet, another girl, another planet. 